Amen. Amen. The Beatitudes, Jesus started off with all of the blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Then he began to look at how all of his disciples are the, the only salt of this earth, the only light of this earth. And then Jesus begins to go from verse 17 on, taking the law that they knew and the law that they were taught, the law that they were given verbally and orally, oral tradition passed on from grandfather to father to them. Jesus is going to take it and go almost commandment by commandment and give them the true meaning of these commandments and how they all go back to our heart. The, the, the matter at hand is the matter of our heart. Where is our heart at? So in verse 21 and 22, he began by telling them that murder, it's not just about the outward act of murder, but it's what's going on within our heart. If our heart is filled with hatred and filled with vengeance, filled with anger, we are still in sin and we are giving room for the devil to use us and hatred and anger being unchecked will one day lead to anger. I will lead to murder. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus continues this idea. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Jesus is making a bold declaration here that reconciliation is more important than our religiosity. Reconciliation is more important than our religiosity. Someone once said, an offense against your neighbor builds a fence between you and God. An offense between your neighbor builds a fence between you and God. Especially if it's within your same home. Especially if the person that you've offended is the person you sleep next to when you go to bed. You're building a fence between you and the Lord. Somehow we trick ourselves into thinking that, hey, I can be right with God and be wrong with my neighbors. Here Jesus is saying it's all one and the same. How the Lord would rather we stop and leave our gift there at the altar and be reconciled with our brother and then come back and finish offering that gift. Oftentimes, well, thank God, not oftentimes, but various times, various occasions, before I've come up to teach, I've had to go to my wife and apologize because I'm not right. We're not reconciled. We're in the middle of a fight or an argument, and it's not right for me to come up here and try to preach God's word. I need to stop, be reconciled. I do it before service. I'm not late at service because I'm reconciling <laughs> with my wife, right? But I need to reconcile with her before I think that my service unto God is going to be seen as a blessing to him. Romans chapter 12, 18 puts it this way. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, 
live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Again, if it is possible, and as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as you can, live at peace with everyone. Yes, even that neighbor that always is playing music till three in the morning, right? Even that neighbor that cuts their trimmings and they throw them over your, on, on your side of the fence, Whatever that neighbor is, whoever that in-law is, whoever that outlaw is, as much as you can, live at peace with all men. Throughout this morning's Bible study, we should always go back to Jesus Christ and the mindset he had for us and with us, what he was willing to endure because of us. Commentator David Brown, he, he tells us this, it is at this solemn moment, when about to cast himself upon, upon the diver, di, divine mercy seat and seek in his offering a seal of divine forgiveness, that the offer is supposed to all at once to remember that his brother has a just cause of complaint against him through breach of this commandment in one or other of the ways just indicated. What then? Is he to say, as soon as I've offered my gift, then I'll go straight to my brother and make it up to him? Nay, but before another step is taken, before the offering is presented, this reconciliation is to be sought, though the gift have to be left unoffered before the altar. Our God cares about our relationship with fellow brothers and sisters. God cares about the purity of our heart and the relationship we have with our neighbors. Don't be like that wicked man asking Jesus, who really is my neighbor? We need to love our neighbors. And at the end of this chapter, he says, love your enemies. So even if they're not your neighbor, you still have to love them. You still have to care for them. But our God, he doesn't, he's not as interested in our sacrifice and religiosity as he's interested with our heart towards him and towards our brothers and sisters. That's why in Psalm 51.16, David says, You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. So if you know someone has something against you, go and reconcile. What good father does not desire peace between his own children? Is there any parent out there that says, I love it when my kids are fighting? I love it when I pick them up at school and I'm just swinging my arm back there, right? Just seeing who gets some because they're always fighting. A any good parent desires peace between his children. How much more does our perfect Father in heaven? Let's turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, perhaps we're finding difficulty applying this because the sacrificial system is over. But Mark chapter 11, Jesus speaks about our prayer life. And the same idea is here. Mark chapter 11. Verse 25, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, 
forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. All of the responsibilities on us, whether we realize we've sinned against someone else, who's the one that's supposed to go out? It's me. I'm supposed to leave my sacrifice there and go and reconcile. Here in Mark chapter 11, if I realize I have not forgiven a brother or sister, who is it on? Is it on them coming and pleading and groveling at my feet asking for forgiveness? No, it's up to me to forgive them so that my Father in heaven would forgive me my trespasses. I love the character arcs in the Bible. And one of the best ones we find in the Apostle John. John, when he's first working with Jesus, he's known as one of the sons of thunder. John's missionary style was deep fried. You either accept the gospel or we just deep fry you if you don't accept it, right? Lord, teach me how to bring fire down from heaven and we'll do it to these people. And yet this son of thunder in his old age, in 1 John 4.20, he says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? This man that once asked God to give him power to rain down fire from heaven is now saying, if you hate your brother, if you hate your sister, and somehow think that your walk and relationship with God is right and proper, you're a liar. You don't know what you're talking about. Verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Quick question here. How many of you think you could take on a skunk? Anybody here think they could take on a skunk? Anybody have any nightmares about skunks, thinking that a skunk is going to choke you out or it's going to murder you in your sleep? I think each of us think we could take out a skunk. But is it worth it to get in a fight with a skunk? <laughs> Two days later, three days later, a week later, is it going to be worth it to get into that fight and that battle with the skunk? It's been said, you may have won the battle, but you're going to lose the war, right? You're going to lose the war. And here what Jesus is telling us is that if you've been wronged, humble yourself. Humble yourself and let it go by quickly. Agree with your adversary quickly before you get to the judge, before you get to the trial. If you're the one that has done wrong, be quick to humble yourself and repent. I know I'm not the only one that you're in the middle of a heated argument and then about 10 minutes in you realize, wow, I am completely wrong. It is completely my fault. And then you go, there's no turning back now, right? You, 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 just, you just keep going. This bulldozer ahead. You know you're wrong, but you're going to get them to say sorry anyways. Here Jesus is saying, that's not the play. The play is to let go of your pride and be quick to kill your pride. Be quick to squash your anger. Be quick to settle a dispute and make peace with your adversary. When we fight for so-called justice for ourselves, when we fight and we want to keep that battle brewing with our adversary because we don't believe their apology is good enough, Ephesians 4 tells us that we're making room for the devil himself. Ephesians chapter 4, 26 tells us, be angry 
and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. When we hold on to our pride, when we hold on to our hurt or our bitterness, our anger, when we want to keep a dispute open because we believe they deserve more pain, when we simply don't want to submit and say those three little words that are so difficult for some of us, I am sorry, it's my fault, I was wrong. When we resist God, what we do is we're giving room for the devil to come into our homes, come into our marriages, come into our lives. And the only thing Satan is seeking to do is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So that's why Jesus says, be quick to agree with your adversary. Don't wait till you go to the judge. Don't wait till you go to the officer. Don't wait till you're thrown into prison. Be quick. Be quick to agree with your adversary. Verse 26, assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Oftentimes in marriage, you're right, but as Pastor Raz would say, you're dead right. And you're going to, again, you're going to win the battle, but you're going to lose the war. You're going to lose the war. Just let it go. Let it go and trust in God. Verse 26, Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Jesus also takes opportunity here to speak about our eternal judge. He's speaking about our eternal adversary. And if we go through this life continuing to hold on to our pride and dig our heels in and we just fight our eternal adversary and fight our eternal judge until we see him face to face, then we will spend the rest of eternity paying for it. We will spend the rest of eternity paying for this prideful act. However, if we humble ourselves if we agree with God as quickly as possible, if we agree with his word and what his word says about us and with what his word says about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, then we will live at peace in this life and we'll live at peace in the next life. Be quick to agree with your eternal judge. Be quick to agree with our eternal adversary. Verse 27 and 28 Much like murder, Jesus now addresses adultery, and it all begins within our heart. Verse 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus takes the law of the day and raises the bar once again. Now, Jesus is not saying that committing the physical act of adultery and committing adultery within our heart is the same moral sin. But he is saying that they are both sin and that they are both wrong. It is not enough for us to just stay away from the sin of adultery or the act of adultery. We need to constantly be asking ourselves, are we staying away from the lust and the thought of adultery? Are we staying away from the the lusting and the coveting within our hearts for other people or other marriages or other homes or other cars or other things? Once again, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Brothers and sisters, 
What are you looking at? What are you looking at? What are your eyes spending time gazing upon? What desires are you stimulating and chewing on within your heart? Jesus is telling us to be very careful because what we're thinking about constantly is going to give birth to sin within our lives. Jesus is also making it abundantly clear. We have a choice in what we look at. We have a choice in what we lust after. We have a choice in our thought process and in our desires. We need to take responsibility for our actions and for our thought process. Jesus knew and God knew it all began with our heart and with our mind. That's why in Exodus 20, verse 17, he tells them, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Paul said this last commandment is what slew him. This last commandment is what made him completely guilty because this last commandment goes on within our minds and within our hearts. Family, we have to take each thought captive You have power over your mind and over what you're thinking about. Thoughts will come and go, but you make the decision on what you're going to sit there meditating on and chewing on and constantly thinking about. We could turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 14. It says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We have control over our thought process. We have control over our desires. And as believers, we have to do a better job of controlling our mindset. Whether it is lust over a man or a woman, or whether it's our own anxiety, fears, and depression. All of that, it's a battle within our minds, and oftentimes we just let it go unchecked. And then we tell someone when we're at the end of the road and our life is on the line, instead of talking to someone at the beginning, man, this thought came, nip it at the bud. But here Jesus, he says, specifically speaking about adultery. This is why, men, we need to make covenants with our own eyes. Job 31 verse 1, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Men, what are you looking at? What are you spending time looking at? What are you spending time lusting after? 
God knows exactly where our heart is, and he knows exactly what our desires are. What are you spending time doing? What were you doing last night? What were you doing this week? The Lord knows exactly where you're at, and you can play the religious game on Sunday, but he knows your heart. That's why we need to make a covenant with our eyes. I'm not going to look at any vain thing. I'm not going to look at any evil thing. The commercial, turn it off right away. That TV show, it's not worth it. I'm walking in the mall. I know where the lingerie stores are. I'm going to go on the opposite side. Make no provision for the flesh. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 21 tells us, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. All of our ways, they're naked and open before the Lord our God. Proverbs 15 verse 3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. It is downright damning to our nation and to our Christianity how many men are in pornography and unwilling to truly put it to death. I encourage you from here on out, put that to death. You're killing your spouse, you're killing your kids, you're killing your church from the inside out. That's why Jesus tells us in verse 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. What is Jesus saying here in verse 29 and verse 30? Should the Christian church look like a pirate's convention? Is that what he's saying? Everybody should have hooks and patches and parrots. Is that what Jesus is really talking about here? No, what Jesus is speaking about is that our attitude towards our own sin needs to be cutthroat. If we're honest in the sins in our brothers and sisters, the specks in their eye, we are cutthroat with the specks in their eye. Here Jesus is saying, what causes you to sin? What are the things that bring those thoughts of anxiety and fear and depression? Cut those things out. What are the things that cause you to covet? Cut those things out. And is social media not just a huge coveting factory? Right? You didn't didn't realize you you needed a new house, but you saw so-and-so, they got a new house. And man, I think I need a new house too. You didn't realize you needed a vacation, but you, saw, you see someone on vacation and now, man, I need a vacation too. You didn't realize you needed a donut, but they reposted the donut and now I need a donut. Whatever the case may be, it's just a cause for coveting. So much of social media, that's what it's about. We covet over one another and what we're posting out there. Hey, if you truly struggle with that, you should cut it off. You should cut off the social media. If you're a brother here and you just say, man, I keep, giving, I keep giving it to pornography over and over and over again, maybe you don't need a smartphone. Maybe you don't need a laptop. Maybe it doesn't need to be out in, in your private room or private area. Whatever is causing you to sin, be merciless towards it. Pluck it out, cut it off, and throw it as far as you can from you. We need to guard and protect our relationship with Jesus Christ at all costs. 
It's more profitable for one of your members to perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. We could turn to Romans 13. Romans 13, Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Romans. Someone's having a good time. Romans 13, verse 11. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off, throw away from you the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Again, verse 14, be merciless to your flesh. Have no mercy on your sins. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't keep a, in case of emergency, break glass, a stash of whatever you sin, whatever your addictions are. Make no provision for the flesh. David Guzik says, Jesus is simply stressing the point that one must be willing to sacrifice in order to be obedient. If part of our life is given over to sin, we must be convinced that it is more profitable for that part of our life to die rather than to condemn our whole entire life. What are the things that need to die in your life? Jesus came into this world to die. Husbands, the way you love your wife is to go into their world and die, self-sacrifice. What are the things in your life that you're holding on to that they are killing you. Because that's the interesting thing with sin. Either we put it to death or it's going to kill us. That, that's the only way around it. Either we purify the poison in the soup or the poison's going to deal with us. That's why, brothers and sisters, make no room for the flesh. Sin can only do one thing, and that is bring forth death. That's the only thing it's going to bring. Verse, 11, verse 31 and 32, Jesus speaks about marriage and divorce. He says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. God had given this law to the nation of Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. The sad thing that was happening in ancient Israel is that instead of getting divorced, men would just stay married to women and then 
treat them like absolute garbage because there is uncleanness. There is sexual perversity within the marriage bed. And now the man would just treat her like trash instead of just putting a certificate of divorce and allowing her to go back to her father. The problem is that many religious leaders took the law and interpreted it, and then there was two schools of interpretation. There was one school that took it literally, that it had to deal with sexual immorality within the marriage. And then there was another school that did a couple mental gymnastics and spiritual gymnastics, and they turned it and they changed it to whatever was most convenient for them. Does it sound familiar to today? So many churches, certain things in God's Word that are just black and white. And yet certain so-called pastors, they do a bunch of gymnastics and they take it to mean something completely different. The more liberal school, they took the word uncleanness in her to mean if the wife did anything offensive to her husband, divorce. If the wife did anything disagreeable to the husband, divorce. If he had any reason to complain about her, divorce. If she went into public with her head uncovered, divorce. If she burnt his breakfast, divorce. If she oversalted his dinner, divorce. If he found another woman more attractive than her, divorce, right? Classic overcook, undercook, that's exactly what it's talking about. No matter what happens, they found any reason possible in order to divorce the woman and get out of the marriage. Much like today. Today we have no-fault divorce. You could literally go up for any reason and say... Her breast smells when I wake up in the morning. I'm just tired of it. I'm just sick of it. And how has this affected our nation and our culture and our morality? Is our nation the better for no-fault divorce? Is our nation, our families better, the children healthier? Not at all. Jesus is saying that unless sexual immorality happens within the marriage, there's no reason for divorce. And then that person is committing adultery. We know that in Malachi chapter 2 verse 16, it tells us that the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence. Charles Spurgeon, he says this. This is about a century ago. He says, our Lord would never have tolerated the wicked laws of certain of the American states which allow married men and women to separate on the merest pretext. A woman divorced for any cause but adultery, and marrying again is committing adultery before God. Whatever the laws of man may call it. This is very plain and positive, and thus a sanctity is given to marriage, which human legislation ought not to violate. Let us not be among those who take up novel ideas of wedlock and seek to deform the marriage laws under the pretense of reforming them. Our Lord knows better than our modern social reformers. We had better let the laws of God alone, for we shall never discover any better. Our God is the lawgiver. He's the perfect lawgiver. And now we as believers, we should be the group of human beings that hold the highest view of marriage. It shouldn't be the Muslims that have a higher view of marriage than us. It shouldn't be the Hindus that have a higher view of marriage than us. It should be us as believers. 
Because we realize we are partaking in something that is holy and set apart. Not self-seeking. Marriage is self-abandoning, not being self-absorbed. And as Christians, we need to realize this and teach this and preach this to others. Marriage is not just a free sex card. Marriage is about self-denial and death to self in order to love someone else more than you love yourself. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, probably the cornerstone scripture when it comes to marriage. Every marital class will go through these scriptures. Many weddings will go through these scriptures. And we'll just read through these 10 verses. But I want you to pay attention to how often the word wife and husband appears And how often the word church and Christ appear to see, okay, what's the priority here? Is the priority just me and my wife and how we feel? Or is the priority Jesus Christ and the church? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife. As also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Again, so much of marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ and his love for the church. So when we participate in being the display for other human beings to see, we should realize how holy and how special the thing is that we get to be a part of. And we need to know that our marriage is bigger than ourselves. It's bigger than ourselves. It's bigger than our kids. It's bigger than our home. We are representing Jesus Christ and his love for the church. I believe that's why the word Christ occurs four times and the word wives appears four times. The word church occurs six times and the word husband occurs six times. Equal importance here, but we are displaying the picture of Jesus Christ. Marriage should be a beautiful picture of Jesus' love for the church and a church's surrender and obedience to Jesus Christ. And if your marriage isn't there... Join the club. There's a lot of work to be done. 
There's a lot of work to be done in each and every one of our marriages. But we should be going after the holiness that God has set up for us. Not only should Christians have the highest view of marriage, but Christians should have the highest view of forgiveness under the blood of Jesus Christ. If there's any people group that should have the most incredible stories of forgiveness, should it not be Christians? Should it not be believers? That's why it's terrible when people take Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' teaching on marriage to then bring a guilt trip upon someone that has gone through a divorce five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And there's those whacked out books that exist. And they just come to bring more guilt upon a hurting person. That's not what Jesus is trying to do here. He's not trying to guilt people even more in what's transpired in the past. We know that 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And we have the beautiful privilege as a church to have not one but several marriages that were divorced, that had adultery, that had all the sins possible in there, and they were able to alone go to the Lord and find forgiveness and let go of the bitterness. And then after they went alone to the Lord, they were able to come back and be restored. Not demanding the other person to forgive them, not guilting the other person to forgive them, but going alone, spending time with the Lord, and seeing the view of God's forgiveness upon their life, And then bestowing that same forgiveness to the person that hurt the most. But all this to say, marriage should be seen as something holy and special to us as believers. Shouldn't just be about planning the party. That's what I tell the young adults all the time. It's four hours. It's four hours. Don't go be blowing 10 grand, 20 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand, 50 grand, right? Four hours. Four hours. So that's a separate teaching. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 33 and 34, he says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. These Roman religious leaders started doing funny things with telling the truth. Kind of like many kids today, even many adults today. How you say something, but you go, ah, my fingers are crossed, right? Or whatever weird trick you have to get you out of actually saying the truth. Some people take this to say that Jesus is telling us to never perform an oath. Never sign a contract. Never do anything that it's an oath or a promise. Is that what Jesus is really saying here? No. You, come on, you guys are students of the Bible. Is that what Jesus is telling us here? No, not at all. Biblically, God himself swears oaths. David Guzik, he puts out these scriptures. Luke chapter 1, verse 73. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Jesus himself, he spoke under oath in the court of law. In Matthew 26, verse 63 and 64, it tells us that Jesus kept silent 
And then the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And finally, Paul made many oaths and promises in many of his letters. In Romans chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says that God is my witness. 2 Corinthians 1, 23, moreover, I call God as witness against my soul. Then in Galatians chapter 1, verse 20, now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. Seems as if Paul's always asking, can I get a witness as he's writing to the different letters. Some people like that. Some people don't. Right? So what is he talking about here? Is it oaths? Is it promises? Jesus, all he's speaking of is the danger of the person that needs to make an oath bigger and bigger and bigger in order to be taken seriously. That person, I, I swear on this. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on my grandmother's this. I swear on America. I swear on this. That person, you should not be taking them seriously no matter what they swear on. Because the very fact that they need to swear on something means that they are not to be trusted. Their word is not enough. And for us, especially us as believers, our word should be more than enough. Your word, be different than the world around us. It is so sad that many Christian businesses, many Christian workers get the worst rap. They're the laziest people. They're the most unreliable people. You can't take them at the word. That, that shouldn't be said of us. When Jesus is baptized, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus hadn't done any ministry yet. Jesus was only a carpenter. So that means God looked down and said, hey, I'm well pleased with everything that my son has done until now. All of his carpentry work, all of his oaths, all of his business dealings, I am well pleased in my son. Verse 36 and 37, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. This is before just for men. Verse 37, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus is drawing from Exodus 20 verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Family, there's just no room for us to be swearing to God. Just be a man or a woman of your word. Be truthful. Be honest. Don't be a flake. Don't be late to work. Be different than the world around you. May your representation as a Christian be building up what we are known for in the society around us. May your good work ethic, may your good works, may your good being on time at work and your good business dealings, your honesty, may it raise up what all believers are known for. William Barclay says, the truly good man will never need to take an oath. The truth of his sayings and the reality of his promises need no such guarantee. But the fact that oaths are still sometimes necessary is proof that men are not good men and that this world is not a good world. It's been said that 10, 20, 30 years ago, million dollar deals would happen with just a handshake. Today, you go to buy anything and you got to like fill out a contract like this, right? 
the fine print that everybody lies. We're all liars. We all accept, yes, I read all the fine print, right? But, uh, yeah, that's between you and you, right? Verse 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. In verse 38, we are given the same rules of justice that God had given to the Old Testament. And the reason why God gave these rules of justice is because we are prone to go overboard in vengeance, if we're honest. Growing up as a kid, your sister does something to you, you up the ante and you raise the bar. Someone cuts you off in traffic, so you have to. You just have to go to your trunk, get out the bat, and take out their light, right? And we raise the ante. That's just what we're always prone to do. That's why God gave these rules. Someone takes your eye, we take an eye from them. The courtroom was a, a tough place, right? He knocked how many teeth out of you? Okay, come over here, right? And you got to knock out the same amount of teeth in them. This was in order to take vengeance out of the hand of the person that was wronged and put vengeance in the hands of whoever God had appointed. Because we are. We go overboard in vengeance and justice. Proverbs 20, verse 22, it says, Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. So what is Jesus asking us to do by turning the other cheek? I love this story by J. Vernon McGee. He says, it reminds me of an Irishman who someone hit on the cheek and knocked down. The fellow, the Irishman got up, turned his other cheek, and then the fellow knocked him down again. This third time, the Irishman got up and beat the stuffing out of that fellow. An observer asked, why did you do that? Well, replied the Irishman, the Lord said to turn the other cheek, and I did, but he never told me what to do after that. <laughs> is Jesus giving us a two-strike rule? Is that what Jesus is telling us? Is Jesus telling us to be a doormat for evil? Some very weak men, they take the scripture to just say, men are to just be a doormat and let anything happen to you, let anything happen to your wife and your children and your home. We know that Romans 12 verse 9 tells us to abhor what is evil and to cling what is good. Romans 13 verse 4, speaking about government, it says that he does not bear the sword in vain. So what is Jesus speaking of here? If a person was to strike someone and slap them on the right cheek, here Jesus is speaking about their right hand, and to hit someone on the right cheek would be a back handed slap and a backhanded slap in Jewish law and tradition would be the greatest insult that someone could receive worse than the worst your mama joke out there right it would be the worst insult that someone could receive so what Jesus is telling us is to not worry about people insulting you allow God to be your defense Evil and abuse is to be resisted. We are to abhor what is evil. Jesus showed us that in his life. He turned over the tax collector's tables. He stood before the woman caught in adultery, and he stood between her and all the Pharisees. David, he shows us this throughout the Old Testament. When he's mocked, we'll look at it later on, he allows it to happen. But when evil is transpiring, he steps in and he 
fights for what is right. We need to be like Jesus. Revile, but then not revile in return. Submit to God meekly, even when your pride is hurt. And when someone's trying to stir you up and trying to get, pick a fight with you, let down your pride. Don't allow them to have power over your emotions. Oswald Chambers, he puts it this way. Never look for right in the other man, but never cease to be right within yourself. We are always looking for justice. The teaching of the Sermon of the Mount is this. Never look for justice, but never cease to give it. Jesus himself was once struck on the cheek. And it's interesting, in John 18, verse 22 and 23, he doesn't go on and turn the other cheek. John 18, 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by him struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like this? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? You see, this is the beautiful balance of Scripture, and that's why we need to read all Scripture. What Jesus is telling us is that we are to have righteous indignation, but righteous indignation cannot be you being mad about something that happened to you. Righteous indignation is when other people are wronged, when God and his word are not honored, and that is when we should step in and abhor what is evil. But when we've been reviled, don't revile in return. When you've been mistreated, give room. Give space for God to pour out his vengeance upon you. If righteous indignation could be had when we've been wronged, would Jesus have not consumed the entire planet when he was wronged? That's why righteous indignation can only happen when others are wronged, when God's word is not honored, and when God's name is profaned. Charles Spurgeon says, Non-resistance and forbearance are to be the rule among Christians. They are to endure personal ill usage without coming to blows. They are to be as the anvil when bad men are the hammers, and thus they are to overcome by patient forgiveness. The rule of the judgment seat is not for common life, but the rule of the cross and all enduring sufferer is for us all. Yet how many regard all this fanatical, utopian, and even cowardly? The Lord, our King, would have us bear and forbear and conquer by mighty patience. Can we do it? How are we the servants of Christ if we have not his spirit? How many of our marriages would be better if we just acted a little bit more like Christ? Instead of looking for vengeance or justice in our marriage, we just let the wrong, we just let it go. How many of us at work, how many of us in traffic, how many of us with our in-laws, our outlaws, our co-workers would be a bit better and calmer if we would let injustice just pass by when it's against us? Notice David in 2 Samuel 16, verse 11 and 12. Abishai, David's right-hand man, says, let me kill that guy. He's making fun of you. And Abishai, he's, he's good for the kill. He's not one of those guys just barking, right? David answers to Abishai, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life? 
How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will, will repay me good for his cursing this day. So we are to abhor what's evil, stand up for righteousness. But if you've been done wrong, we should be like Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's a difficult pill to swallow. I don't know if any Christian has this, tattoo, uh, has this verse tattooed on them, right? I don't know if any of your screensavers on your phone has, yeah, just turn the other cheek when someone slaps you. But this is what it means to be a believer, When we go through difficulties, we're not pulling out the sword like Peter. We're waiting upon the Lord saying, Lord, what would you have me to do here? You are my righteousness. Lord, you're the one that pours out vengeance better than I can. And if you're struggling with this, I encourage you, read the book of Esther tonight. Read the book of Esther. Mordecai and Haman and how God exacts perfect vengeance upon Haman as Mordecai just waits and does things God's way. So if the worship team can come up and we'll close in worship and song. And maybe you're here and you're realizing you're doing all of this in your flesh. You're holding on to bitterness. You're holding on to unforgiveness. Your marriage, your relationship, your job, is everything is tit for tat. Oh, you, you gave me an inch, so now I need specifically an inch. And maybe the Lord's just reminding you to just let go of all that anger. Let go of all that bitterness. Bring it before the cross. And thank God that that's not how he acts with us. Thank God that his mercy is new every morning. Thank you that his mercy, his forgiveness, his love towards us is above all that we could think or imagine. So, hey, let's all stand and we'll close in worship. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love towards us, God. That while we were still sinners, Lord, how you sent your only begotten son to die for us, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us, Lord. Teach us to pray, God. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to forgive Teach us to love. Teach us to be like you. Lord, we ask that you would just strengthen us and fill us afresh and anew with your spirit, God. Apart from you, there's there's no way we could do any of these things, God. So, Lord, we're crying out to you this afternoon, Lord. We're asking you to create in me a clean heart, Lord. We're asking you to renew our minds, Lord, to give us a steadfast spirit, God. Jesus, we need your spirit. We need you to take away this heart of stone and give us a new heart, Lord. We need you to just renew us afresh and anew so that we could be the husbands we need to be, the wives we need to be, the sons and daughters we need to be, the mothers and fathers we need to be. Lord, please strengthen us afresh and anew, Lord. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.